Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Before we get going with the story of Anne Boleyn, I have my usual notices. For those of you for whom last week's interview was a surprise then I would recommend that you check out my Facebook page, where I post updates on the schedule, as well as any other queenly news that crosses my radar. You can also find me on Twitter at at QueensPodcast. If you have any questions or comments, then I'd encourage you to get in touch either through my website, queensofenglandpodcast.com, or by emailing me direct at queensofenglandpodcast at gmail.com. My names for things are not all that original. Finally, the dirty question of money. I am so very lucky that many of you have generously contributed towards the cost of running this podcast on Patreon, and I'm grateful to every one of my subscribers. What many of you don't know is that if I reach $200 per month, I'm willing to make this a weekly podcast forever, not just for the month of February, rather than the bi-weekly extravaganza that it is normally. Making it permanently a weekly show would be a significant challenge for me and would require me to make significant changes to my personal and professional life, but I'd be willing to do it if it makes financial sense. So if you'd like to make this happen, go to patreon.com forward slash Queens of England podcast and contribute. If you can't or don't want to, then no worries. This podcast will still keep going and will always be free for everyone forever. Hello and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 41, Anne Boleyn, The Birth of a Legend. <laughs> you have no need to worry. There is good news all round. Catherine is dead. And I, I am pregnant. I am carrying the king's son. Your bill against Elizabeth Barton. You should add more to the list of the guilty. Thomas More was not involved, Your Majesty. He came to me even before Barton was arrested. Do it anyway. I want him frightened. Fright can I make a man. I've seen it happen. Well, Boleyn girl, show your face. What's so amusing? I was merely offering my thoughts on the new French king. You have such great power, yet such meagre authority as a man. His pettiness is astounding. He will bear a mortal grudge over the mildest of slights. Spoilt cub with a spike in its paw. Riven with resentment. Unable to forgive or forget. A great king. A great man rises above such things. You cannot be free of Catherine. If I were, 
It is impossible. For the last time, if I were free of Catherine and made you the Queen of England, would you marry me? Yes. If you make me Queen of England, I'll marry you and give you sons. Meanwhile, I'll go alone to my bed. You're becoming an embarrassment, madam. What is wrong with you? Are you standing up for myself? That is all. There's only one way to improve your position, and that's to give me a son. Well, I'll give you one if you spend some time with me. Well, don't forget, you need to be involved as well. Or as head of the church, do you think you're now so close to God you can have immaculate conceptions too? The first thing that I do when I start on a new queen is go to the Bodleian Library's online catalogue and just simply type in the queen's name and see what comes up. For some queens, that has produced tumbleweeds. There are many medieval queens of England who are without a biography, not even a bad or inaccurate one. Most of the time there'll be one or two things, sometimes serious scholarly works, other times they're for a more mass audience, but rarely are there more than, say, three or four useful books or articles. For Anne Boleyn, there are scores of them. Even after I had dug deeper and really looked into what books were really necessary, I was slightly overwhelmed by the task at hand. And I was not surprised in the least, because I don't think there is any doubt that Anne Boleyn is England's most written about, most controversial, most enigmatic, and most fascinating queen. This is also shown by the sheer number of cultural representations of her. In the clips that I played at the beginning, you heard, in order... Natalie Dormer in The Tudors, Claire Foy in Wolf Hall, Natalie Portman in The Other Berlin Girl, Jean-Vierre Bujold in Anne of the Thousand Days, and Helena Bonham Carter in Henry VIII. This is not to mention books, plays, films, songs, everything you can think of. I'm told her portrait even appears in one of the Harry Potter films, thanks to the association of her with witchcraft. In every one of these representations, Anne Boleyn is given a new face, a new voice, a new personality and a new moral compass. This is equally true of the historical scholarship. Our view of Anne says far more about the time in which we live and the person writing the story or history than the woman herself. This is true of all history, really, but rarely is it so clearly expressed than with Anne. We are Victorian historians who are wonderful because they're so very open with their prejudice. One such representation is in Paul Friedman's 1884 biography, where he says that, quote, Anne was not good. She was incredibly vain, ambitious, unscrupulous, coarse, fierce, and relentless. At least half of those, of course, might be considered attributes, had they been used to describe a man. This view persisted for a very long time. The view of the evil Anne. Though even in Victorian times, there was a counter-view, that of the innocent Anne. Agnes Strickland, who is really the Victorian equivalent of me, but an author portrayed her as a victim of the despotic Henry, completely innocent of all charges against her. Moving forward to more modern sources, we have David Starkey's Anne, a wily temptress who strung along a hapless king to do her bidding until she overplayed her hand. Quote, She bullied Henry, she wheedled, she threatened, and most devastatingly, she cried. It was how she had destroyed Wolsey, now she would remove Catherine. The modern debate about Anne in scholarly works tends to be divided into two camps. The followers of Eric Ives, who view Anne as a feminist hero and most influential queen consort in English history, and it was these things that brought her down, and those of G.W. Bernard, who takes a more traditional view of a highly sexual woman who was probably guilty of the crimes for which she was accused, and whose influence has been overblown. And of course, outside the realm of historians, we have Philippa Gregory, who thinks that she was a scheming and trapping woman who got so desperate that she banged her brother. So I guess your question right now is this. 
James, where do you stand on Anne Boleyn? Well, you'll find out over the course of this series of episodes, but I would describe myself as more of an Ivian than a Bernardian. I do think that as a queen, Anne had more influence over the course of modern English, British and even world history than almost any other queen, but as much of that was deliberate as it was inadvertent, and this is important not to get sucked into the riddle wrapped in an enigma that is Anne. A reason for this, actually, is the surprising lack of sources on her. Since her family was not of enormously high stock, we don't know a great amount about her early life. The main source on her life, just as he was for the latter part of Catherine of Aragon's, is Eustace Chapuis, who, as the imperial ambassador and friend of the former queen, loathed Anne Boleyn with the fire of a thousand suns. I'll be quoting extensively from him, as he is such an important source, but it is vital to know just how unreliable he is in this regard. Any history that takes him at face value is going to be hopelessly skewed, and yet a lot of the time, he is all that we have. The monastic histories that we might otherwise have had may well have gone up in smoke during the dissolution of the monasteries. Anne's fall was so swift and decisive, and Henry so sensitive to any criticism, that later writers were hardly likely to treat her memory well. We don't even have all that many portraits of her, because Henry had most of them destroyed when he married Jane Seymour. I won't pretend that I'm not a little nervous about covering Anne. A lot of you have very deep-set views on her, and some of you may not agree with my analysis. I certainly haven't agreed with a lot of the big-name historians on the matter of Anne. I acknowledge, as I do for all my episodes, that my view on these queens is inevitably coloured by my own personal biases and worldview. I do my best to keep Anne out of it, but it is of course a necessary fool's errand. This is all by way of saying, please don't yell at me if you disagree but I'd be delighted to hear from you if you do. Okay, long series introduction almost over, I promise. For the rest of today's show, I will talk about Anne's early life, the courts in which she grew up, and how she first caught the eye of Henry VIII. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on her early life, growing up at foreign courts, because it had such a profound effect on her life. You really can't understand Anne if you don't look closely at her upbringing. Okay, I hope you're ready, because here we go. Anne Boleyn was born to a family on the up. Her great-grandfather was a mercer and a former Lord Mayor of London, who made the leap to become country gentry. And her father, Thomas Boleyn, made the next step to become an influential man at the royal court. The family wealth very much helped Thomas along, as did his intellect. He was fluent in both French and Latin, and quickly rose up the ranks. He also had good family connections. His mother had been the co-heiress to the Earldom of Ormond, and then he himself managed to marry well, wedding Elizabeth Howard, daughter of Thomas Howard, the Duke of Norfolk. Therefore, this view that some have of Anne as this low-born lady is simply not true. She had Howard blood flowing in her veins, and while they did not have the cachet it once did due to their support for the Yorkists, they would rise again and bring the Boleyns with them. Anne was the middle of three surviving children born to Thomas and Elizabeth. She had an elder sister named Mary, and a younger brother, George. Anne was born in 1501 at the ancestral home of Blickling in Norfolk. Her early life is rather lost in the fog of history. Indeed, those facts I just said are based on educated guesswork. We don't know for sure what order the Boleyns were born in, nor do we know when for certain she was born, or even necessarily where. We can, however, more easily track her father's progress through the court. The connections that he made through his marriage made him a rising star. He attended the marriage of Prince Arthur to Catherine of Aragon in 1501, and was part of the escort of Margaret Tudor, Henry VIII's sister, to Scotland for her marriage to James IV. He was also part of Henry VII's funeral procession in 1509, 
and proved he was just as quick with alliance as he was with words by competing alongside the new King Henry VIII at tournaments in the early years of his reign, and was also an accomplished courtly dancer. According to the historian Eric Ives, quote, This experience and skill, and his knowledge of other things courtly, horses, hawks, bowls, shovelboard, allowed Boleyn to pass anywhere. He quickly became a favourite of the king, and served as an ambassador both to France and Spain, as well as Henry's meetings with King Francis at the Field of the Cloth of Gold, and Emperor Charles V at Graveline a little after. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, so let's get back to Anne. In terms of her education, we know it was an uncommonly good one. Unlike her brother, who went to university, Anne had a continental courtly education. The first place that she was sent was also the most influential for the course of her life, and one of the most fascinating courts in Renaissance Europe, the Habsburg court of Margaret of Austria in Brabant. Margaret was Charles V's aunt, although he wasn't yet emperor, and this was THE court to be him. She was serving as regent of Burgundy during Charles's minority, and was, thanks to the death of Isabella of Castile, arguably the most powerful woman in Europe. Thomas secured for Anne a prime position as one of Margaret's maids of honour. Ironically, given what would later happen, Anne was placed in this court to an extent to help Catherine of Aragon. Thomas knew, as did many, that Charles had the potential to be the most powerful man in Europe, and, in case you had forgotten, he was the nephew of Henry's beloved queen, Catherine of Aragon. By placing Anne at her side, his daughter could integrate herself into the Habsburg court and make herself an invaluable intermediary between Henry and Charles. At least that was the plan. Anne, who was just entering her teens, immediately made an impression on Margaret. She wrote to Thomas saying that, quote, I have received your letter by the Esquire Bouton, who has presented your daughter to me, who is most welcome, and I am confident of being able to deal with her in a way which will give you satisfaction. So that, on your return, the two of us need no intermediary other than she. I find her so bright and pleasant for her young age, that I am more beholden to you for sending her to me than you are to me. That is quite the first impression for a 13-year-old to make on such a powerful woman. Anne, as we shall find out, was nothing if not an incredibly intelligent and charming young woman, and would learn quickly under the tutor assigned by Margaret. Her priority was to become the master courtly lady, and this required two things, a knowledge of French and etiquette. There was far more to being a successful lady of the court than putting on a pretty dress and smiling sweetly. Probably the most important talent that ladies need have was to be able to dance, for the dance was everything. Every event involved dancing. It was ubiquitous across Europe. You had to know the steps, know your part. They were integrated into ideas of courtly love, of music, culture. To master the dance was to master the court, and Anne set about mastering it immediately. According to the historian David Lodes, Anne learned, quote, how to conduct that game of artificial flirtation, which was expected of all the maidens at court. Margaret was a rigid chaperone, and was much concerned that these games did not get out of hand. They were to be played in strict accordance with the conventions, and any genuine byplay with gentlemen of the court was strictly forbidden. These lessons, about how to be seductive and to use that as your power, rather than giving yourself over to the man's sexual desires, would be the secret to Anne's later success. There really was no better place for Anne to learn. At this point, while England had often punched above its weight in the Middle Ages, it was still something of a cultural backwater. Fashions and traditions tend to take a little while to filter from the great continental courts to the Tudor court. 
the impact of the early Renaissance on the Burgundian court was felt far more quickly and far more successfully than it did in England, and Anne was right there while it was happening. Everything from manners and fashion to literature, art and music, Anne soaked it all up. One member of the court later remarked that she, quote, Listen carefully to honourable ladies, setting herself to bed all her endeavour to imitate them to perfection, and make good use of her wits, that in no time at all she had command of the language. A year after arriving in Flanders, Anne had her first encounter with her future husband. If you recall, in 1513, Henry was allied to the Empire and Spain against France, and had just won a series of small victories, including at the Battle of the Spurs. It is very likely that Anne would have been with Margaret when, later that year, she met with Henry and would have been introduced to him. Her life at Margaret's court, though, would be cut short. Why? Because of the diplomatic shift in 1514. Again, if you recall, Henry's goal was to marry his sister Mary to Charles, but he got so fed up with his allies that he went about face and married her to the King of France. Thomas saw this coming, and adroitly decided to move Anne to the French court to attend her. Now, this is where things get rather complicated. Before Anne could make it to France, King Louis had a bit of a hissy fit, and packed off almost all of his wife's attendants, though not Mary Boleyn, back to England. Then, the king died, and Mary Tudor quickly then married one of Henry's intimates, Charles Brandon, and brought Mary Boleyn back with her to England. But Anne remained in France to serve the new French queen, Claude, wife of Francis I. Still with me? Okay, so pretty much the only court in Europe that could match that of Margaret of Austria was the French court, and Francis I was pretty much the ultimate Renaissance prince, though please don't tell Henry VIII that I told you that. Mary Boleyn had made for herself, well, shall we say, a bit of a reputation at the French court while she was there. According to Francis himself, she was, quote, a very great wanton with a most infamous reputation. The opulence and liberality of the French court, it seems, made a huge impact on the elder Berlin, and she forgot the cardinal rules of courtly life that Anne had learned at the court of Margaret of Austria. You must flirt, but not go through with the deed if you wanted to keep your good name. This is not to slut-shame her. Many women did very well at the royal courts by using their sexual wiles carefully, but Mary, it seems, was not wily and went a little too far. Anne, as we shall see, was far too canny for that. She would be resident at the French court for the next seven years, and once again, frustratingly, there is very little evidence for what she got up to. She was no longer attending a ruler, as she was with Margaret. Francis was not the kind of king to delegate power to his wife, and so she was not close to the political action. What we know, therefore, is what we can infer and deduce. Just like in Burgundy, she would have been exposed to the great wave of new ideas of the early Renaissance. She, for example, would have met Leonardo da Vinci when he came to live at the court in 1516, and would have played a big part in the Queen's magnificent coronation at Saint-Denis in the same year. By now, she was almost as fluent in French as a native, and so she was much in demand on state occasions when an interpreter was needed. This occurred on a couple of occasions. First, when in 1518, an English delegation came to negotiate the marriage between Henry's newborn daughter Mary to the Dauphin. We know something about the occasion. Each ambassador was matched with the lady of the court, and they would have danced for hours before a magnificent late night. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Feast was held, all organised by the Queen. Sadly, we know nothing of what she got up to, but there is no doubt that her language skills would have been invaluable to both sides. The next and greatest occasion of the age was at the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520. If you remember, this was the diplomatic summit between Henry VIII and Francis I outside of Calais, where they ostensibly were supposed to talk, but really it was about one-upmanship and prestige. It was more an Olympic Games than a diplomatic meeting, and the ladies were on display as much as the great pavilions and noble liveries. Queen Claude, as the co-hostess, was at the centre of everything, and thus Anne would have been next to the centre of everything. She probably would have made quite a mark that day, but again, sadly, we don't have any details. While at the French court, she of course imbibed all sorts of new cultural ideas and fashions, but she was also exposed to something altogether more dangerous and contagious, religious reform. Now it's fair to say that this is all disputed, but it is likely that, given her later religious sympathies, that she would have met, while in France, Margaret of Angoulême. Now this can very much be overblown. She was not one of Margaret's intimates and never served in her household, but they certainly would have spent time together as she was the king's sister. Indeed, there is a letter surviving from much, much later, where Anne states that her greatest wish, after having a son with Henry, was to see her again. I'm not going to get into Margaret's reformist ideas, but it's enough to know that they would later be deemed heretical, and it's very likely that she would discuss these with Anne if they had been so close. That said, Margaret had not developed her beliefs sufficiently until the mid-1520s or so, and by then Anne had gone back to England. That said, it is likely that this contact did later influence Anne's later religious views. While the coming war with France was the chief reason why Anne was pulled out of the French court in 1521, there was another pressing reason. Marriage. Back in 1515, Anne's great-grandfather, the Earl of Ormond, died without having had any legitimate children. Now again, this gets very complicated, so I won't get into it in detail, but to keep it relatively simple... His heirs were his two daughters, one of which was Anne's grandmother, and a cousin. There were considerable lands and wealth associated with the earldom, which was based in Munster in southern Ireland. The court in England favoured the Boleyn claim, but over in Ireland, forces loyal to the cousin, Piers Butler, took de facto control. 
This legal tussle went on for quite a while until a possible solution was thought up. Anne Boleyn would marry Piers's son. Then the current situation would be lived with, and then the clans would be united with their children. Problem solved. Well, no, as it happens. Anne was not keen. Not that that really mattered. But everyone just sort of dragged their feet and it all petered out. And so a different solution was reached, wherein Thomas Boleyn took the title and leased the lands back to Butler at a generous rate. Anne's lack of keenness on the match may have been the reason why she was brought back from France. It's easier to force someone into matrimony if they were close by. What this all meant in the long run, though, is that Anne moved court for the third and final time. Now, at the age of 21, she was introduced to her native English court. Now seems as good a time as ever, then, to ask what these English courtiers would have seen when they first laid eyes on Anne Boleyn. I often think of Anne as being a bit like Jane Austen's Lizzie Bennet, in the sense that they were both ferociously intelligent women who were considered to be the ugly one in their family, or at least not the attractive one. They also both share the problem that in general, in TV and films, they tend to be portrayed by some of the most beautiful actresses around, Keira Knightley and Lily James for Lizzie, and Natalie's Dormer and Portman for Anne. However, Anne was not considered beautiful at the time. Now, the only detailed description that we have of Anne is from decades later, and from someone who clearly buys into the idea of the whore witch depiction that followed her for centuries. Yet some of the most persistent myths about Anne come from this image of her, so I will read it to you. Quote, Anne Boleyn was rather tall of stature, with black hair and an oval face of sallow complexion, as if chelled by jaundice. She had a projecting tooth under the top lip, and on her right hand, six fingers. There was a large wren, a kind of boil, under her chin, and therefore to hide its ugliness, she wore a high dress covering her throat. The idea of the six-fingered Anne has been thoroughly debunked. A myth to make her sound more like an evil witch after her fall, and the wen just seems to be totally made up. Yet it is true that she was not considered a beauty. One of her own clerics, who was a great supporter of hers, used the back of his hand to compliment her when he said that she was, quote, reasonably good-looking. The Venetian ambassador, who was admittedly not a fan of hers, called her, quote, not one of the handsomest women in the world. So what did she look like? Well, she had olive skin, dark hair, a relatively flat bosom, making her look a little boyish, a whitish mouth, and some moles on her face. None of these things these days would disqualify her from being considered beautiful. Indeed, the tall, dark lady with a few well-paced beauty spots is a regular fixture on catwalks and billboards around the world. The problem is that none of these things were fashionable in the early 16th century. Back then in England, gentlemen always preferred blondes. Representations of good characters from Arthurian legend and biblical figures such as Guinevere and the Virgin Mary were always thought of as blonde. A 14th century poet described the ideal woman as being, quote, with a good figure, he means breasts in case you have any doubt, and with a small head. Hair that is blonde, but not from henna, whose eyebrows are spaced apart, long and arched in a peak, who is nice and plump in the buttocks. This view had not changed even a decade after Anne's death, when a courtier wrote, quote, A lady's hair should be fine and fair, in the similitude now of gold, now of honey, and now of the shining rays of the sun. Anne's hair, though considered dark, was not black or even dark brown, really. It was an auburn or lightish brown. Again, we have the problem that most images of Anne were destroyed by Henry after her death. But we can see, in the most famous portrait of her, the one that now hangs in the National Portrait Gallery in London, that her hair is indeed a reddish-brown. Look at the show notes if you don't believe me. 
Anne's biggest problems, though, were not her slender figure, her hair, her small breasts, or even the vestigial nail that later writers would turn into a sixth finger. It was the moles. They were considered defects in women, signs of debauchery, even of satanic influence. However, beauty isn't everything, even at the Tudor court, and as we know, Anne had other skills that she had picked up during her teenage years on the continent, and she was relatively rare in English society for having been sent abroad for so long, and especially in such formative years. One observer at the French court commented that, quote, No one would have ever taken her to be English by her manners, but a native-born Frenchwoman. And she was about to bring all of that learning, experience and sophistication and unleash it on the Tudor court, where she would serve as one of Queen Catherine's ladies of honour. Our first glimpse of her at the court came at a mask in March 1522. This was a rather extraordinary event, which reached its climax on Shrove Tuesday, with a grand event involving eight ladies representing the the great female chivalric virtues. Beauty, honour, perseverance, kindness, constancy, bounty, mercy and pity. Fancy a guess at what Anne's role was? Rather appropriately, it was perseverance. Her sister Mary, who by then was already the king's mistress, played kindness. Opposite them were eight men, each playing a male chivalric virtue, and this all played out at York Place, Wolsey's residence in London, in a great room dominated by a huge model castle with three great turrets with hidden musicians. The ladies were on these towers, menaced by eight evil female vices. The good ladies were then saved by the eight gentlemen, led by Henry himself. According to the chronicler Edward Hall, quote, The ladies defended the castle with rose water and comfits, that's sweetmeats for you and I, and the lords threw in dates and oranges and other fruits made for pleasure, but at last the place was won. Then the lords took the ladies of honour as prisoners by the hands and brought them down and danced together very pleasantly. We don't know what kind of an impression Anne would have made there. The event was put on to show off Princess Mary as a prospective bride to Charles V. It wasn't for her benefit, but it was a magnificent occasion to show off her skills to the court. Rarely would such a grand and expensive event be put on, and Anne was right in the centre of it. It was quite the start. Her position as one of the Queen's ladies of honour and skills at court, and the influence of her family, meant that she was an attractive candidate for a wife, though she wouldn't have been at the top of the list. There were two main men who Anne got involved with before she got involved with Henry VIII. The first was Henry Percy, the heir of the Earldom of Northumberland. They were about the same age, and he resided at York Place as hostage for the good behaviour of his father. George Cavendish, a contemporary, wrote about Percy, quote, When it chanced that the Lord Cardinal at any time to repair to the court, the Lord Percy would then resort for his pastime under the Queen's bedchamber, and would then fall in dalliance amongst the Queen's maidens, being at the last more conservant with the mistress Anne Boleyn than with any other, so that there grew such a secret love between them that, at length, they were insured together, intending to marry. Cavendish, and some later historians like David Starkey, claim that Henry was infuriated by this because of his secret love for Anne, but in my view it's way too early to be thinking about that. At this time, Henry was still sleeping with her sister Mary, and he generally was not the kind of man to have more than one mistress at a time. Indeed, it's more likely that the man who would have blocked this match would have been Percy's guardian, Thomas Wolsey, who wished to marry Percy off to a more suitable, more wealthy bride, Mary Talbot, the daughter of the Earl of Shrewsbury. And indeed, it seems that they had been promised. Anne's father was still keen for the butler marriage, and so was not a fan either. Now, this all becomes very important later on, so pay attention. Cavendish, in that quote that I read earlier, claims that Anne and Percy promised to marry each other, 
Now, this was no joke, as I've said a few times in this podcast. A promise to marry was a verbal contract that was not easy to extricate oneself from. Percy even made the suggestion that he and Anne may have gone even further and consummated her love while still unwed, further binding them together. If true, this was a reckless move by Anne, and therefore seems highly unlikely given how generally cautious she was when it came to sex with men of the court. But the idea that Anne and Percy promised to marry each other, even though Percy had already been promised to marry Talbot, will come back to bite Anne hard later. In the end, the twin forces of Wolsey and the Earl of Northumberland prevailed. The Earl called his son, quote, a proud, presumptuous, disdainful, and very unthrift waster, and carried his son off and forced him into a very unhappy marriage with Mary Talbot. According to Cavendish, Anne was furious with Wolsey for ruining her relationship with Percy, and vowed revenge, though it does appear to be a rather convenient excuse for a bit of foreshadowing. Making enemies for Thomas Wolsey in 1523, when he was at the height of his powers, would be disastrous, and Anne was no fool. The other man with whom she got involved was a far less noble man, a poet named Thomas Wyatt. Now with them, things are less sure. We're not even certain that they had a romantic relationship. Wyatt is considered the first great Tudor poet, and was married, though unhappily it would seem. Now I'd never say that poetry is autobiographical, or in any way trustworthy as a source. However, there is an oft-quoted line from Wyatt's work that many believe is a reference to his relationship with Anne. This comes in 1532, when Anne was with Henry, and Wyatt was part of their entourage on a journey to Calais. He writes here about his anguish over the love that he used to hold for her, and now, kid of it, he sees what a fool he had been. Sometime I fled the fire that me brent, by sea, by land, by water, by wind, and now I follow the coals that be quent, from Dover to Calais, against my mind. Lo, how desire is both sprung and spent, and he may see that Willem was so blind, and all his labour now he laughed to scorn, meshed in the briars that erst was all to torn. Their relationship seems to have been a rather conventional tale of courtly love. The lovesick man chasing the woman, who rejects him but offers him a faint chance. This goes on for a while, the man getting ever more romantically emo in his poetry, until the woman either relents or rejects him more firmly. She later says of Wyatt that he was one, quote, whom she loves very much. There was definite affection, but it could never have gone anywhere, as historian and Anne Boleyn biographer Eric Ayers explains. Quote, in her early years at court, his attentions cannot have been unwelcome. Percy's was the greater scalp, but even at 19, Wyatt's enviable combination of physique and good looks, intelligence and articulate personality, spontaneity and good humour made him very attractive. Yet there was one absolute block to the relationship going further than friendship. Separated from his wife because of her adultery, Wyatt was in no position to offer Anne anything but a place as his mistress. So in the 1520s, Anne had gone through a couple of dalliances, and there may have been others that history does not record. But in a way, she needed to get a bit of a move on. By 1527, she was in her mid-20s, and that was getting on a bit for an unmarried woman. Her elder sister Mary was still the king's mistress, and was herself married to William Carey, so to keep up our Pride and Prejudice analogy that I brought up earlier, she was really being very picky about her choice of husband, and was far behind her elder sister in the courtly rankings. If she didn't make her mind up soon, her window of opportunity to get a good match may close. This all changed though in 1526, and I will end today's episode with the story of how Anne first caught the eye of the king. Now, as you might imagine, this story is infused with a great deal of legend. And of course, the fog of history means we can't be quite sure how this happened, or even when it happened. 
Anne would have been known to the king ever since she arrived from the Tudor court in 1522. She was a member of his wife's household, and her sister was his mistress. It seems, though, that he had not much considered her until the mid-1520s or so. George Wyatt, the grandson of the poet Thomas, recalls that it all started when his grandfather took from Anne a jewel and wore it about his neck as a symbol for his love for her. This is all pretty standard courtly love stuff. However, Henry, seeing this and falling into the classic toddler conundrum of not wanting to play with a toy until someone else started playing with it, decided that he rather fancied this other Berlin girl and warned off Wyatt. George Wyatt writes, quote, The noble prince, having a watchful eye on the knight, noted him more to hover about the lady, and she the more to keep aloof of him, was wetted the more to discover to him his affection, so as rather he liked first to try of what temper the regard of her honour was, which, he finding not in any way to be tainted with those things, his kingly majesty and means could bring to the battery, he in the end fell to win her by marriage, and in this talk took from her a ring that wore upon his little finger, and yet all this with such secrecy was carried, and on her part so wisely, as none or very few esteem this other than an ordinary course of dalliance. So Henry had entered this game of courtly love with Anne, and was throwing his weight around a bit. In the game of courtly top trumps, king beats poet any day. What he was doing here was offering to make her his mistress, but she clearly refuses, leading him to offer her marriage, so strong was his desire. This, though, does seem to be moving the story along a little too quickly. Henry seems to have spent a very long time persuading Anne to be his mistress before deciding to press the big red button on his own marriage. Now, this quite clearly places Henry's fall for Anne, which I think we can say almost certainly took place over a long time, starting in around 1525 or so. Now, if you can bring your mind back to the Catherine of Aragon series, you may remember why this was. This was the time when Catherine had had a final miscarriage, and at the age of 39 was extremely unlikely to have more children. This was when Henry gave all those titles to his bastard son, Henry Fitzroy, positioning him to possibly become his heir. David Lodes described the developing relationship between Anne and Henry well in his book on the Boleyn family. Quote, The chances are that it began as a conventional courtly love exercise. Henry had played these games with numerous ladies in the past, and each time it had set tongues around the court wagging and kept the diplomatic gossips busy. There was usually nothing in these tales, except that the king was amusing himself in his customary fashion, and even Catherine did not take them seriously. However, at some time, probably in the summer of 1525, Henry decided that Anne was different. It may have been that her responses were wittier than usual, and sidelong glances more convincing. At any rate, he was sufficiently attracted to end his relationship with her sister, and set out on the uncharted waters of soliciting a girl who was his intellectual equal. It may well have been an exhilarating experience. David Starkey, whose analysis of Anne I generally don't agree with, does agree with this assessment of Anne's success in enticing Henry by using the power of the word no. Eventually, she did agree to sleep with Henry, but on one condition, and it was a biggie. She would only do so if he made her queen. And on that bombshell, I will leave you for this week. Now, I have really been spoiling you recently with two episodes in a row, and this will continue with my Valentine's Day supplemental on Tuesday. So if you've been listening to me for the last 18 months, just just waiting for me to whisper sweet nothings to you, then now is your chance. Then we will return to our regularly scheduled programming in a couple of weeks, when we will complete the story of the rise of Anne Boleyn, from Apple of the King's Eye to his lawful wedded wife.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.